1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I am so pleased to say that this is a rerun. We've gone deep back into the archive. I think this is one of our first ever podcasts, so no one was listening. None of you were listening back then. 2015. God, I was a child. This is Jessie Childs, one of my favorite historians. She's so talented, award-winning historian. She wrote a beautiful book about spies in Elizabethan England. I want to talk to her about perhaps some of the aspects of Queen Elizabeth I that don't often get talked about and whether, in fact, she was just as brutal as her big sister who got a slightly tougher press from contemporaries and those observers who followed their rules. This, everyone, is the brilliant Jessie Charles talking about Queen Elizabeth and how she maintained her grip on power. If you want to watch documentaries. We've actually got Jesse Charles on History Hit TV. We've got lots of documentaries about the Tudors. If you want to go over there and check that out, please go to historyhit.tv, use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You will get a month for free, and then you'll get your second month for just one pound, euro, or dollar. So sign up. we got modern history, we got Tudors, we've got ancient history, we got all sorts. You're going to love it. But in the meantime, everyone, here's Jesse Childs talking Elizabeth I. Enjoy. Why are we obsessed with the Tudors?
3: Well, there's the people, for a start. You have the soap operas. You have Henry VIII, barrel-chested, massive copies. The wives. You have Mary Tudor, who's not so interesting as on a popular level, but who's burning all these people at the stake. You have Elizabeth I. Was she a virgin? Wasn't she? I mean, you have all these things that the sort of academics sniff at a little bit, but that really bring people in. And then on the level that academics get excited by, this is the time when the archives are really opening up. People are really writing things. The parish registers, you know, from 1538, we have them. So we know when people are being baptised, when they're dying. You have more diaries, you have more literacy. So that's very, very exciting. I do know that's fascinating.
2: You learn something every day. I'd never thought about that. So there is, is, it makes sense. There's a step change, isn't there? I guess because printing press as well, between between the 15th and 16th centuries, really, in terms of the amount of sources there
3: are. Yeah, I think there is. And you have also this this tremendous spirit of inquiry that happens in the 16th century. So you have humanism and the Renaissance and the discovery of new worlds and new peoples. And there is this sense that anything can happen and that the son of a butcher can become, you know, rise to the top of the government or Cromwell, you know. and And so there is there is that wonderful sense of opportunity and individualism that comes with Protestantism as well and you have all this change you have great change with with religion as well and so I think it all comes together and then you have these personalities that people can really get involved in for the first time ever really we know what they look like thanks to Holbein you know if you look at medieval pictures they're all sort of kneeling in prayer and they're in profile and it's not very exciting. Or they're sort of hidden by that great big hats. Yeah, I mean,
2: the Henry V, those late Plantagenet paintings are rubbish, aren't they?
3: They're not lookers, are they? Whereas, you know, you look at Holbein, you can see in some of his portraits, you can see the stubble on the face or you can see the worry in the eyes of, of, of some of the courtiers that he paints. I mean, it's it takes you there straight away. And with Henry VIII, you know, we all know what he looks like. We all know that pose, that standing astride. Uh, they're sort of, it's it, they've somehow master p r and propaganda, and of course, at the end of Elizabeth's reign, you have Shakespeare as well, which which did her no harm
2: yeah that's true and and uh, so I guess you're right, also gosh, for all those reasons, and also I suppose is there a sense in which a lot of, of of modern Britain starts to emerge? is it first colonies, the royal navy do we do we think it's sort of ground zero for a lot of the modern british project
3: I think almost when you look back with hindsight you can see that it starts there whether when you're living through it at the time that was the case I think we were sort of Henry VIII when he broke with Rome said that this nation is an empire and then you have uh all the wonderful literature in Elizabeth's reign and it's all very much Gloriana and, and you, you look across you have the Armada portrait with her hand on the globe whether, whether when you're living through each moment at the time you're thinking we're, we're on the cusp of change I'm, I don't know, I so, know it's okay so
2: then so because people also talk about you know this yeah the use of statutes the role of parliament under Henry VIII and stuff and how important it becomes but do, so are so actually you saying that you think is it, is it is the tudor century did more big stuff happen than in the, the the centuries either side or is the 17th century just as important just as interesting <laughs> but we just don't know as much, we don't the public don't enjoy it and know as much about it i
3: think that's true. I think I always feel a bit sorry for the 17th century yeah. on the popular level. I mean, obviously, not, not in academia where, where it's very well covered, but I kind of feel like it gets, it gets run over a little bit and, and people just sort of go the Tudors and then they jump forward. And I, I don't really know why, because it's our, it's our century of revolution. Weird, and it? I know, okay, you know, Charles II comes, and we have the Restoration, and 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 a lot of stuff gets reversed, but it's still our revolution. You look at France, you look at America, and the celebrations they have around their revolution, and and our revolution is sort of. It's, even though it's now called the War of Three Kingdoms, which you think might get people a bit Game of Thrones-y yeah, yeah. about it, they still don't 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 really clutch onto it that much. And I don't know why, because there's some you know the, the writing of the time is, is astonishing. It's
2: where it all happens. And I, weirdly, I uh, as an eighteenth-centuryist, so I've always thought everything happens in the eighteenth century, long eighteenth century, sixteen eighty-eight, eighteen fifteen. It's where it all happens, right? And I have just got recently this nagging problem that I keep thinking, you know, I think the real action is in the seventeenth century, the birth of a. Scientific revolution, all that stuff—that's really seventeenth century, isn't it? The the real expansion of the Royal Navy and all the work Pepys does—that's seventeenth century. And it's, it's um and lots of the constitutional stuff is seventeenth century. I I feel like I'm sort of betraying the eighteenth, but I'm I'm gonna try and stay firm. So let's just deal with some of the big questions here. Where where are we on Tudors? Henry the Eighth, blood-soaked, nutty, genocidal tyrant, or sort of brilliant Enlightenment prince? Oh, Renaissance prince.
3: Both. Okay. He was the I first. Was Both, of course. <laughs> he, he was. He started off this young, strapping, very promising young man, beautiful, good looking, and and seemingly very chivalric, but always warlike and always ruthless. And then, of course, as he gets older, he gets fatter. He gets incredibly capricious. At the end of his reign, you know, he is he is your archetypal tyrant and he will change his mind and people don't know where they stand. At the end of his reign is the Henry VIII, I think the popular image of Henry VIII. But I think he was almost like um, I write in my book, this is an awful sort of literary thing, but they, they like medlar fruit and I don't know about you, Medlar fruit is, is this fruit that um, ripens with its own corruption and I liken him to that because he does, he almost he almost becomes himself when he, when he is the most corrupt. We almost love him like that more.
2: Do you think he becomes more capricious and tyrannical because that's what happens when you concentrate power in one hand. So I think I'd be just as bad. Or do you buy the kind of head injury and all the and all these other sort of theories that are coming out?
3: I don't buy the head injury as this happened and then he changed and his something happened in his brain. I think what is interesting and what is valid is, well, A, that was a very bad year. We're talking about 1536 uh, when he had the bad injury also because his, his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, died. And uh, I think it's very, you know, it's easy to forget. He's one of those sort of forgotten figures. But he was a great sign for Henry VIII that he was Vera. And again, we think of Henry VIII as sort of such a manly man. and, and But actually, he had fears about impotence and he was very anxious. And he was kind of, a one-woman guy, would, you know, in the sense that that he did marry for love in a way that very few people did, and he was hurt, especially by Anne and Catherine Howard, um, and that's why he became so vengeful. What also is valid is is the sense of pain that he had to live with. I mean, everyone knows that sort of if you've got the flu, you feel rough, you become a bit depressed, you get a bit cross, you get a bit snappy, you don't sleep well. I think all those things. Um, although it's you know you're then getting into the territory of feely-feely and what did he think and how did he feel, but I think. I think that's quite important he was in a lot of pain um his leg ulcer was separating horribly when it burst he was limping around by the end of his reign he was carried around in a sort of almost like a stanna stairlift kind of thing
2: and he burst when they put him in the coffin didn't they didn't he i think he burst oh, i think his body sort of erupted story. yeah, yeah and- as i get older maybe my body's failing and i'm i get increasingly interested by the stuff historians aren't really very good at which is Looking at the more prosaic and physical reasons, we're also good at sort of thinking, now, why was the Emperor Tiberius? What was going on with Maybe he was just getting old and tired. And these people lived in the pre-modern world. There was no medicine. They must have, so many people must have been living with chronic pain. And that would change you, wouldn't it?
3: I think it would. I think it would. I think it explains a lot of these snap decisions that people make and then changing their mind the sense of sort of blaming other people as well. You know, he was so reliant on his positions, he's so reliant on his inner circle. And when they let him down, you can see him having a go at them and and, and becoming you know really unfair. But there is, I think, as you said, there's this sense of so much of a burden on their shoulders. And they are the divine right monarchs, these Tudors. And they very much feel all of them that they have this divine contract with God and they are there on this earth to rule for God. And therefore, everything they do is not only being scrutinised by their people and their subjects, but far more importantly, by God. And it depends, you know, what they do here on earth will, will will determine how they, you know, what happens to them in the afterlife. So it's a huge burden.
2: That sounds totally exhausting. Okay, so let's move on to his daughter, Elizabeth, the other famous Tudor. Was she brilliant Machiavellian political controller. Or was she quite lucky?
3: I think she was brilliant, actually. I, I, uh, I give her a bit of, of bashing in my last book because I talk about a minority that she's, she, persecuted. that last book,
2: by the way, God's Traitors, Sorry. fantastic book. Jesse Charles, buy it immediately. It's fantastic. It's prize winning. It's plug, a prize plug, plug, winning plug. book. Plug. Hear the
3: plug there. Sorry about that. But, but the point being that I, I always give her a bit of a hard time and I kind of, um, it's nice to be able to big her up a little bit because of course she's brilliant. She, she picks the right people at the right time. Um, she is lucky. You know, anyone who rules for 44 years in that period, uh, is lucky but she was very canny with the decisions she made or the decisions she didn't make half the time she kept people hanging on she she didn't jump at things uh, like her father did but she also was um her image she was so careful of her image and this was really important as a renaissance queen Um, If you look at um, Mary, Queen of Scots, who's a sort of in many ways, her great nemesis during most of this period, cousins, rivals, queens, Mary just couldn't control her image. So there were all these stories about her being, you know, a slut and being hopeless and not looking out for her country. And and whereas Elizabeth just had all the right people around her and saying the right things and celebrating her in the right way. And she was very good at the sort of the common touch when she was on, on progress. Um, but then she could also keep her distance in her portraits and keep her eternal youth. So she was she was very canny and very brilliant and utterly ruthless as well.
4: Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan and, like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
2: and what okay so what about the succession issue did did Elizabeth what did she hope was going to happen after she died and did she manage that well or was it did we fall into the Stuart era uh, by chance as much as judgment
3: I think she knew exactly what she was doing I think the moment you name your successor then people are looking to your successor and I think she could never name Mary Queen of Scots because she was Catholic, and she that just wasn't going to happen. But but James, Mary's son, all the sort of bat channels were being worked all the time, really. And I think everyone kind of knew that James was um, going to take over, and, and she knew too. And uh, but she was very clever in not naming him too much and, and making sure that the sun shone on her, and, and that's that's very important as as a ruler. And she was the state. I mean, if, if Elizabeth, it's so hard to sort of imagine what she was going through, but she was facing assassination plots the whole time from dissident Catholics. And if she had collapsed, so would the, the whole Protestant state. So, so it, it's so important that she stays alive. And if if she named her Mary, for example, then you know the plots might well have continued. And if she named James or Arbella Stewart, the problem with not naming a successor is then you get other people speculating.
2: The thing about Elizabeth is... Does she sort of paper over the cracks in English government and society? Because the crown is kind of poor. There's a big problem with the religious divide in the country. Uh and, and and a generation after Elizabeth dies, the entire country falls into the worst violence that our country's ever known. The the what was the Civil War, the War of the Three Kingdoms in the 17th century. Did did was was she as great a ruler as as people have thought her? Or did she just sort of hold it all together while she's alive but didn't really lead a a lasting legacy
3: I think she was great in many ways you know the sense that she she lasted that long the sense of the culture that was going on at the time the propaganda the 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 literature Um, actually the Church of England is, is, is an amazing construct it in a way was very middle way it wasn't of course, Catholic, they didn't have the mass, but it kept enough features. If you look at the wording in the prayer book of the mass to make sort of crypto Catholics kind of happy to yeah, go it's not a hardcore
2: it. Lutheran, it's is it? It's not
3: a hardcore Lutheran. And then and the Protestants, you know, the Puritans, wanted far, far further reform, and she resisted that continually. And she was often a check on her ministers who wanted to go further. So the Church of England is, is, is an incredible legacy of her reign. Um, but many things, I mean, things like the economy that was sort of the currency, things like that were actually sort of being straightened out in the reign before hers, in Mary's. But Elizabeth gets a lot of credit for it. She should get credit for many things. I mean, the, the poor laws as well. And also, I think the sense that she could and did delegate. I mean, there's a great debate over whether actually she was really sort of presiding over what you call a monarchical republic. And it's, it's you know, people like the Cecils who who are running, running the gig. So I think one of her best things is to know and to trust the right people.
2: Well, yeah, because we worked together on a Spanish Armada programme the other day, didn't we? And, and what's interesting there is that Elizabeth, it, she didn't have much to do with it, really. What part of that victory can she take credit for?
3: That's a really good question. I think the key thing that she did that Philip didn't do was to allow her admirals to be able to make decisions on the ground. And as you we showed, you showed, and Jeffrey Parker, you know, going through these incredible manuscripts, you see the frustrations of the Spanish generals, and how they can't get messages quickly to Philip II of Spain, and how Philip II of Spain anyway has it predetermined, because it's God's will, and this is how it's going to happen, and then somehow the fleet will, will join hands with Palmer, and it, you know, it was never going to happen, that was, that, I think for me, that's, Flawed strategy is, is the reason it didn't happen. And Elizabeth let Drake and Howard get on with it.
2: I suppose that's... And especially in pre-modern government, arguably in modern government, but whether there aren't proper communications and, and uh, instantaneous ways of maintaining your control on situations. So I suppose really what they've got to do is is appoint the right people, give them the right resources, and let them get on with it. That's kind of all you can do.
3: Yeah, yeah. I and mean, you, you could... And how long would it take? And certainly with Philip getting it across Europe, it would take two weeks or so for a message to get there. I mean, Elizabeth, it's a bit quicker because you're just talking ab- across Britain. But even then, you've got to have some very fast horses and you've got to have the post system, you know, with riders all ready to go. And you can't, you know, as you know, with, with military affairs, you can't you can't wait for responses days later or even hours later sometimes.
2: Look at the stable of advisers and commanders that Elizabeth had. Is that is was that pretty good? I mean, you compare it to some Charles the some of his advisers, and does that really show the difference between those the two the two rulers?
3: Yeah, I think it does. I think Burley was one of the greatest statesmen. William Cecil, Lord Burley, was one of the greatest statesmen our country has ever had. And he ran the show a lot of the time, or at least he worked very effectively alongside Elizabeth, and he could speak truth to power. On the other hand, she needs to be culpable for certain ministers. I mean, Francis Wolseum is one of those very interesting characters. I mean, he's he's often um, shorthand said that he's Elizabeth's spymaster. And he's one of those people that you need to have but you don't want to sort of broadcast. Um, he's the guy who sort of gets up to all sorts of shady um, agent provocateur and double agents and triple agents and, and entraps Mary, Queen of Scots in the end. And he's but you have to remember with him, his motivation. He was in Paris in, in 1572 um, at the time of the massacre of St. Bartholomew's. So he saw, he was on Socoman with the English Embassy there. He saw thousands of French Protestants, the Huguenots, being massacred and, and babies even being killed and people being thrown into the Seine. And I don't think, you know, that experience, he was there with his wife, child and pregnant wife at the time. Um so you can imagine, you know, how much he hated and feared. Catholicism at the time. So, and also he has this wonderful, at the time of Mary Queen of Scots's trial, he said, um, I'm trying to remember what he said. He said, um, I have done nothing as a private man, unworthy of an honest man, nor as a public man, unworthy of my calling. And then he said, I protest before God that as a man, careful of my mistress's safety, I have been curious, which is the most (laughs) wonderfully sort of Rumsfeldian (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> double language. Um so whether or not he you know, she was she was brilliant to have him, I think she probably was because he kept the, the state safe. On the other hand, there are people like Richard Topcliffe who she almost sort of unofficially appointed. He was very much her appointment, her man. He would write to her directly. And he was um a priest hunter he would he would go off and, and find priests and he would um drag them out of priesthoods and he would torture them and he would even be at their trials mocking them sometimes and it's pretty interesting when you read his letters to elizabeth and he's joking about um the way he's going to torture a priest and how um, he will hang him up by his hands and he will soon have him dancing like a trick at Trenchmore, which was a sort of very jerky, very uh, rustic kind of dance at the time. And you read that and he's writing that directly to Elizabeth and it kind of makes you question her judgment a little bit sometimes. So um, so her publicly, fingerprints
2: were all over the, the, the bloody clampdown on Catholics in that period. She can't get away from it.
3: You know what, can I just show you something? I yes. think I've got it right here.
2: Jessie's just charging across the other side of this lovely study. This perfectly arranged study there, she found it immediately.
3: This is, by the way, I promise you this is not premeditated, it was on my desk. This is a letter, do you recognise the hand?
2: Elizabeth Regina.
3: Exactly, it's the beautiful, famous, italic uh, signature of Elizabeth I. This is on a torture warrant of 1571. So her fingerprints are on it. Her
2: signature is literally on the torture warrant there.
3: This is a copy, by the way, I didn't steal it.
2: Bloody Bess. Okay, brilliant. So Jesse, what? Uh, what? Okay, so we, the Tudors. We know what we, we've just explored. Why they were so popular? Why they remain so popular today? We explored that some of the extraordinary things: the Armada, the drama, the wives, Shakespeare. What were their fundamental? What were their enduring legacies in England and Britain?
3: Oh boy, I think Church of England. You have to give them that, even though it's not that sexy. Shakespeare. Yeah, pretty good. Although he's also Jacobean, but of course he was born in Elizabeth's reign. And the New World. I mean, it it did start there uh, in in the sense of discovery, um, Virginia. So... I think, you know, they, they've got a lot going for them.
2: I think it's, my favourite thing is Henry VIII starts the 16th century behaving like Henry V, you know, dreaming oh, about empire in France. Yep. By the end of the period, you're dreaming about empire in the New World. It's the East India Company, it's Virginia. I mean, that is a change of mindset that's, well, competes with anything today that we're going to see in this great technological revolution, I think.
3: Yeah, you're right. And and Henry VIII, Utterly wanted to be Henry V. I mean, he he really tried to emulate him. Um, And you can see that in in, in the way he was painted and in medals and things. But yes, his eyes were on France. And at the time, England was very much, you know, bit player between France and the Holy Roman Empire. And it was sort of, England could sometimes affect the balance of power and diplomacy and that was about it. And so Henry, they, you know, rides into france and wants to win things and you're absolutely right and then, and then by the end you know when when, when france is, is not really on the radar in the same way and and they're looking out and i think there is you know we're talking about that spirit of inquiry and that sense that anything is possible i think it is incredibly exciting and i know you're talking to peter Frankopan about about the silk worlds you know it's always important to bear in mind that there's so much going hell's going on and and, and also in I mean, India, I find fascinating. At the same time as Elizabeth, direct contemporary, was Akbar. Mm. And he was fascinating. He welcomed all sorts of religious minorities into his court. He welcomed debate. He He, he allowed the, See, the, the in. Mughal
2: emperor, who was probably the most the peak of the empire in India, wasn't it? And then it went in a precipitate decline after that, partly when the English arrived.
3: Sure, if it's the English. Well, you know all about the East India Company, yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: At the our one child,
1: one teacher.
2: Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense, but if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there, law of the jungle out there, and I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome, but if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.